Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour. To be a part of the program, it is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. It's another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. So Red Hat has closed their deal. It is official. IBM has closed the deal, marking the largest software acquisition in history and the largest, largest acquisition IBM has ever embarked on the acquisition of Red Hat for $34 billion. Now, you've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. Red Hat is still Red Hat. And I know that there are a lot of you Red Hatters out there that listen to this program. And so to you, I want to, and I know that some of you are uncomfortable with this decision. I know some of you are uncomfortable with this direction. And I guess what I would encourage you to do as an outside perspective, as somebody who follows Red Hat very, very closely, um, and I have some insight into your culture and I have some insight into your company, as an outside perspective, what I would tell you is that I tend to believe IBM when they say that they are committed to preserving Red Hat's independence and neutrality um, and culture. And the reason I believe that is because that's what's logical. This is the largest acquisition in IBM's history. So imagine, just imagine, just think for a moment, how much thought, how much planning, how much consideration has to go into a decision to spend $34 billion on a company which owns no intellectual property and whose employees are free to leave basically at any time and there is a whole swath of other companies out there willing to eat them up, give them a healthy paycheck to keep doing what it is they're doing. Think for a moment, how many comp- <laughs> think how many companies out there are doing similar work to Red Hat and how many employees could choose if they wanted to to depart from Red Hat and go something and go somewhere else. IBM has absolutely nothing to gain by screwing up this deal. Here's an email from Jim Whitehurst that he sent to all Red Hatters this morning, and it was later made public. You've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. Red Hat is still Red Hat. IBM is committed to preserving Red Hat's independence, neutrality, culture, and uh, industry partnerships. I know that I know you want to know what it means for you, and it's pretty straightforward. Our mission, our culture, our community-first commitment, our product portfolio, our leadership team, our day-to-day operations, our brand, and our soul— are going to remain the same. Our unwavering commitment to open source, all that it takes to bring into the enterprise and what makes us Red Hat. This is not changing. IBM stands to gain nothing by screwing up this deal. So if I can encourage you from an outside third party's perspective, I think this is a great thing for Red Hat. I, we talked about this briefly. We talked about this idea briefly back uh when we had uh, the 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 folks from uh, I think it was back when we had the folks from Southeast Linux Fest on 
if you want to change a company, the way you do that is from the inside out. The way you go about changing a company, if you don't like the way that IBM functions, then you better pray that more people from a company that you do like, like Red Hat, get more involved with companies like IBM. And you need to hope that companies like Red Hat have influence over their quote-unquote parent company, IBM. Now, it stands to reason, consider this. I'll bet you there's just a handful of you out in the audience that can actually identify for me what it is that IBM does and how it is IBM is still around and what IBM makes their money on. Because I'll tell you something, it's not Lotus Notes Domino, right? I mean, they IBM is a company that has built its future really for the past five or six years, working business to business, large enterprise scale stuff that we you don't even hear of. And uh, if you go to industry conferences, then you start to see it. And then you start to talk with some of these people and you start to get an idea of what it is they do. But IBM has not, I mean, I don't think there's a lot of us in the technical space that really do understand what it is IBM does that would, uh, that would classify them as a terribly successful uh, technology company. Do they make money? Yes. Are they successful at business? Absolutely. Are they a big mover and shaker in the technology industry, though? Is it? I mean, other than other than some of the advanced architecture that they're working on, again, very industry specific, uh, very application specific. If you take that out of play, IBM hasn't really had any major wins recently, and I think that's kind of I think that's kind of what they're looking to change, because I think IBM would like to return to the industry dominance that they had at one point. And I think that they look over at Red Hat and go, man, look at those guys over there. Look at that $34 billion company and they don't even own anything. They just sit around and do amazing work and people want to throw money at them and a lot of money at them. And then you have podcasters and broadcasters that want to go on and, and talk about what a great company Red Hat is because of the incredible work that they're doing for the open source community. Man, wouldn't it be great if those people just became part of IBM and then we would own all the stuff that they're doing and then we could benefit from their rise up and we could put some major buku bucks behind them for places that they can't for to, to reach an audience or to reach a customer base that they otherwise wouldn't be able to grab? I think to a certain degree, I, I think what it is, is to a certain degree, I tend to see this stuff a little bit differently because I'm a small business owner. And when you're a small business owner, you tend to look at everything from the money perspective. And you also, you start to get a very keen insight into what your customers want. And you start to get a keen insight into how customers make purchasing decisions and how they decide to enter into a contract with you or how they enter into doing business with you. And when you start to look at it from that perspective, this decision starts to make a lot more sense. Look at it from the client's perspective, Red Hat client perspective, IBM client perspective. What is the client, what is the client portfolio? If you're a Red Hat client, what are you lacking? It certainly isn't service. It's certainly not commitment. It certainly isn't enthusiasm. It's certainly not passion. It's certainly not lack of technical expertise. All of those things are there at Red Hat. Do you know what they're missing? Bigger checkbooks. Bigger checkbooks equal bigger progress, equal more influence on the overall community and overall industry. And that's something that IBM can leverage. Now you look at if you're an IBM customer, what are you lacking? Well, you're lacking a lot of innovation, right? IBM, for all of the good things I could say about them, innovation wouldn't be a, a, a term, that an adjective that comes to mind. IBM does not innovate a ton of stuff, right? They buy other things up. And 
in the past, they've kind of acted as a bulldozer. They come in, they, they buy something up, they plow it down, and then they build something new, or they just take over. And I think that's what has a bunch of people concerned. And I think what is being failed to recognize, and I, man, if I've had one internet conversation today, either Telegram or an IRC, I got into it with, on Reddit with some guy today. If, if, I ha, if, if I've had this conversation once, I've had it five times today. And it is this idea that, that it seems to be totally inconceivable that this could be the start of a new IBM. And it doesn't matter how big the check is. It still seems to be inconceivable that this is a new start for IBM. But I'll tell you some... I'll tell you my prediction. Here's my prediction. I think I think what IBM is looking to do is to is far greater than just importing some culture from Red Hat. I don't think they just want to purchase Red Hat and then stick them off on the side and let them operate. I, I think that's part of it, and I think that's how they're going to start. But I think their their plans are much grander than that, and I in a good, very good way. I think what they want to do is put the IBM name over Red Hat. And I think the way they want to do that is I think when when Ginny retires, I think they want to promote Jim Whitehurst to the CEO position. I think that's coming. And we'll see what happens. I could be wrong. That's that's me putting my finger in the wind and just taking a guess. But if I was sitting in IBM seat, I, you know, if you're not in the tech space, you probably have no idea who the CEO of IBM is or the CEO of Red Hat is. Okay, let's just be honest about that. But when you start looking at what Jim Whitehurst has been able to accomplish in that company. And then you start to say, well, how do we get one of him doing what he does over there for us? And then you start looking at what you'd have to offer him to, to draw him away from that company. But hold on a second, because if you just put one guy in the seat of another company, a change does not a company make, right? You have to have a bunch of people that are fluent in working together and have tooling around each other and have workflows and all of those kinds of things. Now, if you can bring all of those people over, now you have a real shot. And so if I'm sitting in an IBM decision chair, I'm looking over at Red Hat and saying, man, you know what we both have in common? We both like to fix stuff for our clients. We both like to, to, to provide solutions to our clients. So how do we do that in a constructive, collaborative way? Well, we have a big checkbook. Maybe we can leverage that to get them to come on board. And to Kabavik in the chat room who says I'm in a fighting mood today, I am in a fighting mood because everywhere I turn, people are acting like this is the end of the world. We, You just took one of the most successful, most awesome, most innovative open source companies in the history of Linux and open source. <laughs> and you have stacked behind them one of the, the largest technical companies with the fattest checkbooks and opened up their resources. And somehow I'm supposed to be depressed about that. I'm supposed to be sad. I'm supposed to be, oh my gosh, we've lost a Linux player. This is They are going to crush, crush their competition right now because they've got the money to do it. They've got the platform to do it. They've got the technical chops to do it. They've got the culture to do it. And they've got the history of trust to do it. Red Hat is going places. And it, I guess the best analogy I could come up with, everybody is treating this merger or this buyout or whatever you want to call it as two people that don't see eye to eye on something being crammed into a compact car and being forced to go on a road trip together. And I, that's just not the way I look at it. They're working together so they can do things they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Nobody got fired. They didn't say that, hey, guess what? Tomorrow you're all Red Hat employees. We're giving you all badges. There's, they have, if they, if they, if, if they go back 
and decide at some point that they want to push IBM culture and push Red Hat culture out, push IBM culture in, and they want to backtrack, it will be the most repeated lie in corporate history. Every single time, and I do mean every single time, Ginny uh, uh, gets on stage and Jim gets on stage and goes to talk about this buyout, they repeat over and over and over and over again that this is not going to change Red Hat, that Red Hat is going to continue to function as an independent company. Now, the real question I have, are we going to reach a point where people are going to get upset if in a few years, Red Hat has started to influence IBM and it actually is working out? Do people want this to not work out? Because it seems like every time I turn around, there's somebody creating a new problem where none exists. Kabavik in the chat room says, I'm waiting with bated breath for that Ubuntu IPO. Well, that's a, you know, that's an interesting, that's an interesting situation that Canonical is in, right? Because, so first of all, they're, they're working on trying to get their profits up. This is the thing that is different from Canonical and Red Hat. And they're two entirely separate companies in two entirely separate countries doing two basically entirely separate things joined together by the shared love and passion of open source and Linux. Red Hat is a very commercial corporate company, okay? They know how to make money, and they know how to turn Linux into money. Canonical, on the other hand, knows how to get users. And so what you have is a really interesting dynamic where you have one company that has dwarfs the other as far as, as users, right? When Canonical releases a distribution and releases statistics for something, their, their statistics represent millions and millions and millions of users, and it's just a fraction of that when you start looking at the number of Fedora users or even Red Hat Enterprise, Enterprise, Red Hat Enterprise Linux users. But the other side of that coin is for every one of those Red Hat Enterprise Linux users are spending buku bucks with Red Hat to have that license. And if they're in a university and they have more, I think the entry level, I think the entry level support for like a personal desktop is 300 bucks. The entry level server, and I'm going off memory, so if, if any hatters out there, I apologize. I think it's like 800 bucks for an entry level server license per year. But a lot, I don't have a single client that does that. All of my clients are up there with higher levels of, of service agreements and stuff. And some of the universities we work with, they actually have like a dedicated Red Hat representative uh, that they work with. I mean, that's the level of service that they're purchasing. So Red Hat knows how to translate that into money. And so Canonical's got to figure that out. How are they going to get people to pay for Ubuntu? And I, I, there is not a magic answer. It's not like the people at Canonical are not intelligent people. They very much are. I, if you sat me down in the seat, I wouldn't know what to tell you. But no cult. Here's what I do know: no culture is changing at IBM. Now I have a number of different articles linked for you in the show notes that relate to this particular deal. A lot of them come from RedHat.com. I, I Red Hat. For all of the bad things that anybody can say about this merger, the one thing you have to give them: they've been insanely transparent about this. You know the the email that Jim Whitehurst sent out to all of his employees or to all Red Hatters that was published online. And so anybody can go read it. We'll have that for you in the show notes. So you can go read what it is people that work at Red Hat are being told by their CEO. They've been, in, they've been, they've been very transparent. So I, and I've already got a couple jokes in the chat room about people uh, joking that uh, I spend too much time on Red Hat, which I do. I admit that. I just really like them. I think they're a great company. I think they do really good work. And um, frankly, I really believe they are 
a major part, if not the future of open source, at least as it relates to uh, to uh, to Linux. And, you know, it doesn't hurt the fact that every Red Hatter, I mean, runs Linux on their desktop. So that means a lot to me. Get 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Now, there's a number of ways you can join the program. You can do that. We also invite you to try our brand new interface where if you go to asknoahshow.com on the lower right-hand corner, there's a widget. It's HTML5. It runs on WebRTC, which means you don't have to install anything. It means you don't have to configure anything. There's no registering for an account. Just click on the little icon. You can join the program live. It'll put you right into our phone system, and we're able to chat with you. We don't collect any information. It's completely private. It's anonymous. It's secure. All Well, secure in that you're going to have an HTTPS connection uh I'm not going to say it's secure because it's going out over the air. It's not secure. It's horribly insecure. But you know what? Nobody cares. You can also join us in our interactive mumble room if you'd like to do that. Lots of different ways to become a part of the program. So this week, uh, I also wanted to give an update on our Raspberry Pi 4. Uh, I, last week, I talked about my disappointment of the Raspberry Pi 4. This week, I'm pleased to be able to come back and say, hey, we are making some progress in the correct direction. They have issued a update to supposedly fix the uh, the heat issue. Now, truth be told, I am aware of the fix. I have not had a chance to apply the fix and then sit down and actually retest the pie. Uh, unfortunately, there are only so, so many hours in the week, and I ran out before I had a chance to do that. But it is on my docket for this week. Also on the docket for this week, and you'll want to keep uh, an eye out for this on our MindDrip Media channel. That's our video-focused Linux content. Uh, System76 has sent us a review unit of a one of their new laptops, and so we're going to be reviewing the Darter Pro, a full video review, and that will be available sometime this week. You can check that out over youtube.com slash minddripmedia. That is our video-focused Linux content. We invite you to check that out. So if you're holding off on the Pi uh, because of anything that I said, um, I guess back it up just a little bit because it looks like they are addressing it. I still think... Uh, even if they fix the heat issue, I still think there are some major, major, major issues with the Pi 4. I still don't think it's going to live up to the expectations if you're going off of the expectations as they're laid out by the specifications of the Raspberry Pi Foundation, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. Now, I was playing with a really cool app, and we don't usually talk about Android apps on this show because I try and keep it Linux and open source related uh, focused. However, uh, just about every one of you out there has a smartphone, either Android or iOS, and I would imagine that the vast majority of you are probably running Android. Um, but this app works on both, and so I thought I'd bring it up because it's a really cool app, and I think these people are doing some really cool stuff. It's called Be My Eyes, B-E-M-Y-E-Y-E-S. And this is a neat app. Essentially what it does, it's a free app that you install and you can either sign up as a volunteer or if you're visually impaired or blind, you can sign up as a blind individual. And what this app does is if there is somebody out there that is blind, they open up the app. Let's say they're in the grocery store and they need to pick out uh, their favorite flavor of almond milk and they can't find anybody in the store to help them and they can't see which of the milks in front of them represent the almond milk they have the opportunity to open this app for free and click on a app that says be my eyes the be my eyes app opens up and initiates a video call with the be my eyes network of volunteers and a volunteer then if you're on the calling list gets a gets a push notification to their phone that somebody is looking for site assistance 
and you can click accept on the call and it begins a video conference in which you can help people who are visually impaired or blind accomplish a variety of tasks and there's no real rules uh, well, I shouldn't say that. They have to be, uh, you know, appropriate. It can't be inappropriate with the app. But uh, if, other than that, there are no rules on what tasks uh, are, are allowed. So it's they, they're totally putting it in the hands of the community. And that's why I bring it up on this show, because it's absolutely even if it's not open source and even if it isn't a uh, even if it isn't a, a Linux specific thing, it's absolutely fits into that makerspace, community space, uh, entrepreneur kind of thing that I know you are going to really appreciate. And, and I heard about this and I immediately signed up as a volunteer. I took my, my, I got my first call. I was very excited. This is a cool app. You guys absolutely have to sign up. The other thing that I think is really cool about this app, if you're thinking to yourself, self, I really don't want to, uh, I don't want to sign up for that app because I don't really want something else to be bugging me on my phone. Uh, I, and now I feel guilty because Noah said that everybody should sign up for this app. Well, don't because the network of volunteers is something like 15 times larger than the amount of people that actually need assistance. So there's zero chance that if you are a blind or visually impaired person that you're not going to be able to find something. They say that their average call duration or the, the, the time to answer the call is under 10 seconds. So it, the way that the app works is it goes in groups of 10 people. So when you request help, it rings 10 people. If they don't answer, it rings another 10 people. If they don't answer, it rings another 10 people and so on and so forth until somebody picks up the, and answers the call. So the app, again, uh, Kapavik in the chat room is asking, it's called Be My Eyes, B-E-M-Y-E-Y-E-S. And um, that the fact that their, net, the, their volunteer of, of networks is 10 times that of the actual people that need the help, well, it does three things for me. One, it really restores my faith in humanity because I now believe that there are awesome human beings out there that are willing to give up their time and, and you know, their free time and, you know, frankly, their data plan to be able to participate in helping somebody else who's in need. The other thing that it exemplifies to me is the power of community is so much greater than the power of commercialism, right? Like, and this is coming from a guy who's a small business owner who puts his money or puts food on the table based on my ability to go and sell products and services to other people. So I'm very much in the let's sell stuff and make money. I'm not against that at all. So you're not a bad person if you want to make money. Don't get me wrong. But think about it. If if tomorrow a company popped up and their thing was going to be, well, we'll pay. It's going to be the Uber of blind people. And so they're going to charge people, you know, $7 for, uh, for a video conference call and they'll pay their their volunteers or whatever a certain amount of money. It would, you would, first of all, you wouldn't have nearly the network. And second of all, if you did get the network, there'd be a bunch of problems because people would fight over this, that, or the other. Everybody that is on the Be My Eyes app wants to be there because they want to participate in helping other human beings. And let me tell you something. There is nothing more rewarding in the world. I mean, nothing you can do in your day-to-day -day living that is as rewarding as helping, helping somebody do something so small that is otherwise a showstopper for them. And because we have technology, because we have always-on technology, because we have video conferencing technology, because we have fast internet, because we have smartphones, because we have accessibility features that blind people can use smartphones. That alone was like mind blowing to me that they have a functionality built into Android and iOS that guides blind people through being able to use a touchscreen smartphone. I mean, that that alone is very cool. And then you install this free app and you can essentially volunteer to be human eyes for other people. Absolutely cool. So be my eyes. It's the name of the app. Again, community-run thing. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. You can check those out at podcast.asknoahshow.com. I'd invite you to do it. I'd really encourage you to sign up, even if 
Uh, I don't think they really need any help. Sounds like they're doing just fine. I have gotten one call in the, I don't know, week and a half. Well, not, not, it hasn't been a week, so I guess less than a week that I've had the app install, I've gotten a single call. So don't feel any pressure to, but I, to, I can't wait. I can't wait for my next call, whoever my next friend is going to be, and whatever fun task I'm going to help them with. And some people, I was reading on, on, a, on, a, on a forum, some people actually do a thing where if they want to do a long project, like they want to do, uh, and I'm just making this up, they want to do laundry or something like that. It's going to be like an hour-long task. They'll just break it up. So, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll answer the phone and say, hey, I can help you for five minutes. Okay, well, do this, do this, do this. Okay, great. All right, I have to run, so find somebody else. And then you hang up, and they just push the button, and it takes them to another volunteer. So there's never any pressure. It's not like you have to take a shift or anything like that. If you can't take the call, just ignore it because you know there's 10 times as many people willing to answer the calls. It's actually hard to snipe a call. I've missed a couple. So check it out. Be My Eyes, available on iOS and uh, in the uh, Google Play Store. Kernel 5.2 is out as of, I believe, Monday. Kernel 5.2 has some really exciting features. Now, usually I don't get terribly excited about kernel releases. I mention them because other people care, but at the end of the day, it's a kernel. Like, it installs, it just does things. But this one is really cool. There are some uh, there are some features and functionality that has been added that is going to matter to you as a desktop Linux user. So, Logitech has helped to improve drivers for its various wireless receivers, such as the Logitech Bluetooth dongle used with the MX550 or 5500, excuse me, keyboard and the S510 remote. Also, the uh, the Logitech unifying receiver. So if you have the little uh, Logitech star type receivers that have been in use for ages and ages, those things uh, got some major improvements from and some help from kernel 5.2. Uh, they're now capable of relaying battery status. It's kind of interesting. I don't entirely understand this, if I'm being honest, because I have a I have a all of my mice are M520 trackballs and my Battery status has showed up for years on in, you know, I just even back in the unity days, I would have the battery status for my laptop and then the battery status for the mouse. So I'm not really sure what they mean when they say that there's they have improved uh, uh, battery status support. Um, but now they have improved battery status support and it can relay battery status. So I guess if that wasn't a thing, it is now. One of the things I'm super excited for real tech. Wi-Fi drivers, specifically the RTW88. Now, this is an 802.11 AC wireless driver that supports RTL8822BE and the RTL8822CE chipsets. And so you're going to have support with the release of 5.2 along with support for USB SDIO models, and those are coming in the very near future. But the thing that is exciting to me about that is there, if you look at laptops and their compatibility with Linux. And I spend a disproportionate amount of my day researching laptops and their compatibility with Linux because I'm a geek and I have nothing better to do with my time. What you find is the things that people complain about are audio devices, sound cards, and Wi-Fi. And if it's the Wi-Fi, chances are if it's not working, it's because it's made by Realtek. So anytime I see that improved support for drivers inside of the uh, for Realtek is occurring inside of the kernel, I instantly become more excited and 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 relieved because I know that that means that there's going to be a whole new line of laptops that are now going to work um, with Linux. As, a, as an aside, totally unrelated to the release of kernel 5.2, I was working with a client uh, this week and I had an opportunity to play with a Samsung Galaxy Book. I believe that's what it's called. And essentially what it is is it's an ARM-based... I think it's ARM based. I guess it would be 80, x86 based. It is an x86 based uh, 
laptop that is in a tablet form factor. So it's kind of like Samsung's alternative to the Microsoft Surface. Anyway, he asked me, he gave it to me and said, hey, can you restore this thing and, and give it to me? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So I took it back to the shop. And of course, the first thing I did before I restored it for, before I did the Windows restore on it, is I plugged in a flash drive and um, booted Linux to see how it would work. And uh, everything pretty much out of the box worked. The only thing I had some trouble with was the sound, the audio device didn't work. Uh, but everything else worked just fine uh, right off the back, up to, to include the fact that I could close the keyboard lid and it would go into suspend and then come back. So I thought that was pretty cool. Now, I don't I really have a practical use for tablets that are designed to look like laptops. Frankly, it's kind of confusing to me. If you want a laptop, get a laptop. If you want a tablet, get a tablet. And I don't think Linux makes a very good tablet operating system. And I don't think Android makes a very good laptop operating system. So I tend to keep the two separate. But if you're one of those people that were eyeballing it and wondering if it works with Linux, here's an aside of me saying, yes, it works with Linux. Other features of 5.2 include increased support for USB Type-C picks. It adds support for DisplayPort, Alternative Mode, and Firmware Flashing, the latter being handy if you use LVFS to update firmware. They also are supporting a number of single-board computers in the mainline kernel, so the all-winner-based Orange Pi 3, the rocket chip-based Orange Pi RK3399, and a slate of NXP-based boards, the $99 NVIDIA Jetson Nano, um, which we, I think we talked about on, on this show earlier, uh, in an earlier episode, the uh, quote, this kernel release is the first to feature work by the sound open firmware or the SOF project superheaded by Intel and Google. The SOF aims to provide a platform for the creation of open source firmware and audio DSPs, which is very, very exciting. Other improvements of 5.2 include GeForce GTX 1650 gets Novu support, various AMD Ryzen laptops improvements, so Ryan will be very happy, various ARM improvements, Intel com uh, Comet Lake support, prep for next-gen AMD, Epic CPUs, ARM64 shows spectrum mitigation, state via SysFS, hibernation support re-enabled on Intel, Bay Trail and Sherry Trail, U2F Zero Driver, latency or legacy IDE driver, deprecation, and Thunderbolt support for older Apple hardware. For some reason, if you have older Apple hardware and want to run kernel 5.2 on it, well, now you can. The phone line to be a part of the program, it is 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. You're on the air. Good afternoon. Welcome into the program. That's you. 8585. Going once. Going twice. Thanks for the call. I'll put you back on hold. Maybe you can get uh, maybe you can get your um, your uh, your call stuff sorted out, and uh, maybe there's an audio issue or something like that, and and uh, Sarah can help you out and uh, and get you back into the queue. And we'll get you back on the air real quick. Uh, again, eight fifty five four fifty no. It's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. So uh, one thing, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I I'm essentially I just want to mention it. Canonical's GitHub or one of their GitHub repos. Uh, has been hacked. Um, it, what's interesting about it, and I don't bring this up because it's of any particular um, significance or anybody's you know, in danger or anything like that. Canonical actually came out and said that the launchpad infrastructure where the actual Ubuntu distribution is built and maintained is completely disconnected from GitHub. And so it's, it's, it's like an auxiliary uh, repository. So from, from that perspective, it's, it's not a big deal. The only reason I want to bring it up is it's interesting. The hack appears to be limited to just a defacement with 11 new repos subs subsequently named got hacked 
H-A-X-X-D dash one, and then obviously dash two, dash three, dash four, so on and so forth. Um, Canonical responded in a statement said, we can confirm that on 2019-706, there was a Canonical-owned account on GitHub whose credentials were compromised and used to create repositories and issues among other activities. Canonical has since removed the compromised account from the Canonical organization in GitHub and is still investigating the extent of the breach. But if there is no at this time, there is no indication that any source code um, or or P2 was affected, the spokesman said. So here's the issue, or here's why I bring this up, or here's why I want to kind of chat about it. It was just kind of cool. Uh, does anybody else think that there is some nerd respect going on or there is some geek cred happening here because they didn't like they, they had access to the account. They didn't modify any source code. They didn't do anything malicious. They just, they just defaced it. And I just, I have to wonder if the people that have the technical chops for the ability to do things like this, if they don't look and go, "Mm, but it's canonical, it's Linux. I like Linux. Linux is cool. I'm going to show them why they should secure their stuff, but I'm not really going to drag them over the coals. Just a thought for you. Something to consider. All right, uh, let's go back to the phones. Are you there with me, Ryan? I am, Noah. How are you doing this evening? Hey, man, thanks. Welcome into the program. Uh, happy to be a part of the program. Hey, I want, I'm want. i a little late to the party. I want to add some comments to accessibility on Linux since you mentioned uh, sure. accessibility apps for blind people. Um, my dad, he's uh, unfortunately blind with retinitis pigmentosa, so it's kind of something I've been doing with all my life. Mm-hmm. But... I've been using Linux for the last four years, and I've been trying to get him on Linux. And you'd be surprised on how big the gap is for accessibility on Linux. There used to be like three or four separate individual dedicated distributions for uh, blind accessibility on Linux. But all of them have died except one, and that's Nopix. Believe it or not, Nopix actually has a dedicated mode for blind people where it gets rid of all of the graphical interface. Really? He speaks in a dedicated UI. Yeah. It's the only thing I've been able to find, and unfortunately, even though it's good if you're a simple user, mm-hmm. if you're an advanced user, it doesn't let you use things like LibreOffice, or, you know, modern programs, quote, quote. And uh, the only thing, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with JAWS. JAWS is the number one uh, accessibility program for blind people on Windows, followed by the open source program NBDA, which is getting, gaining popularity. Uh-huh. But uh, Gnome Project has something called Orca. And Orca yes. is the main uh, thing that they've been doing for a while. But uh, it's hard to convince people to it because the, they use eSpeak. And eSpeak actually has someone who listens to Confluence. Mm-hmm. And Confluence is uh, the voice engine used by JAWS. And it sounds it sounds eh, but it's easy to understand. Mm-hmm. So the eSpeak, they kind of shut down. Sure. So, uh, I, you know, you have projects like Mycroft, and they're doing Mimic. And Mythic Mimic sounds a lot nicer than eSpeak, so I've been keeping an eye on that. And hopefully, Mimic will get into Orca. But, yeah, it's really hard to get blind people in the Linux, and I just kind of want to mention that. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for bringing that into the program. I really appreciate that. I also point you to our interactive telegram telegram group at uh, telegram.asknoahshow.com there are i know for sure there are a couple of people that are in there that have some um that have some uh, various disabilities and i've seen a couple of discussions crop up so if you want more information uh, uh, or, or if you're looking for something uh, that might be a resource for you as well if you're not in there I, i'd invite you to join otherwise um i really appreciate the information we'll have a link to orca in the in the show notes after the show kyle joins us from minnesota hey kyle welcome into the program Hey, Noah, good evening. Um, I had a question for you about best practices for self-hosting your own uh, data, for example, NextCloud specifically. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I, I, I'm a little uneasy about, so I'm a little naive as well about, about networking and, and Linux security, stuff like that. But um, I didn't know if best practices um, if I set up a Nextcloud instance on my server at home and use my existing infrastructure, is best practice uh, VPN into my network to access the own to the Nextcloud image, or is it you know opening ports on the router to access it externally? Um, just curious what your thoughts were and what you recommended for. for uh, I, ideally, from a security perspective, the 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 less access you can give to the public, the better. So from that perspective, uh, a VPN is going to be a better solution. That said. Nextcloud is specifically designed with the idea of being run on the public internet, and people do it all the time uh, to include the people that wrote Nextcloud. So I wouldn't have any reservations uh, if you wanted to run it open on the internet. But if you're asking for the absolute most secure way to do it, yes, VPN. Okay. Is there anything as far as um, so I'm running an Ubuntu 18.04 server? Is there any any best practices you recommend there as far as um, you know? securing it or is do you feel comfortable enough with nextcloud that whatever port you have to open up to access nextcloud next through the server um or excuse me through the router uh you feel comfortable enough where you don't have to you know super duper lock down your your, well, your ubuntu server so a couple of things there so first of all segregation is a big deal right if you can get that nextcloud instance on its own virtual server or even better yet use something like the docker container the docker instance so it's a totally isolated that's going to be a little bit better are you opening yourself up to some security vulnerability if you have if you if you leave the the port open directly yes but i would trust it yeah absolutely sure okay Sounds great. Thank you very much for your help, and thanks for all the work you do. Yeah, hey, I appreciate you joining the programs. Uh, 855-450-NOAA, that's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. That is the number to join us and become a part of the program. Stephanie Chires is the VP of RHEL, and uh, we had a chance to sit down with her and, and chat with her a little bit about Red Hat. I thought in light of today being the day that Red Hat actually officials uh, officializes the uh the, the deal that today would be the, the, the day to air that interview. So here's that audio. Stephanie, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. It's an exciting time for Red Hat. Obviously, 26 years uh, in the making, Red Hat has become probably the most prolific name in Linux. Um, as Red Hat approaches that first uh, quarter of a century, and you have some examples of open source, what is next for Red Hat? I mean, to me, it's, um, you know, I. What we have done so far in the industry about helping people take advantage of open source in the enterprise, we take huge pride in that. The innovation being done in open source is just beginning. You know, for us at Summit and, and for Red Hat Enterprise Linux, the thing that's been amazing is this is our chance to reinvigorate with customers and the market that as the IT world continues to change, there is one thing that needs to stay the same so that what you did yesterday and what you do tomorrow, right, have some continuity, and that's Linux, right? And so for me, it's all about getting out to the market that the platform matters, Linux matters, it's what runs your business today, it's what will help you consume the innovation tomorrow, and now you start to build on that, right? With the Linux portion, being able to deploy it via Kubernetes with an orchestrated container environment, given that flexibility, right? So to me, it's not really a change. Our strategy won't change. It is about continuing to deliver innovation done the open source way 
provide choice today and preserve customers' ability to choose tomorrow because everything continues to change. Do you see Red Hat moving to a point where, obviously you'll do both to an extent, but do you see Red Hat moving towards a direction where you look to introduce more uh, new products and services or continue to refine the existing products and services that you have? Like you say, to a certain degree, you'll obviously need to do both. Um, but where do you see the focus of that in the future of Red Hat? You know, I think our commitment to the platform and the, our commitment to Linux won't change. I think how customers want to augment the use of that Linux and how they take value from that is um, we will keep pace with the market in that, right? We take so much innovation from open source. It gives us headlights to what's coming down the pipe. Kubernetes and OpenShift is a prime example of that, mm -hmm. right? It took Linux and now it's a new way to consume it. So I think our commitment to Linux and the platform, that won't change. We'll continue to work with our partners and our customers and the upstream communities to make sure how customers want to use that and leverage that and then pull in the rest of the portfolio as well. We'll continue to follow that, but uh, we are a Linux and a platform and an open source company, right? And we'll do everything we can to help people take advantage of that. Here at Summit, as well as basically any Linux conference in the past couple of years, past five years even, um, you've seen a rise of talk about containers, Kubernetes, OpenShift, and those kind of related technologies. How do you see that evolving over time? So Kubernetes and containers are a great technology because they give customers so much flexibility about how to deploy applications. The key thing about it is, though, is it's actually a more complicated way to deploy your Linux because now your Linux is split. It's split part of it in the container, you've got your kernel, and you've got Kubernetes. So I think the use of containers gives customers great flexibility with how they deploy applications with the speed and agility that they need. But if you want one friend, as you move into the Kubernetes world, you want someone who knows Linux. Absolutely. <laughs> That's why our focus in how we preserve your experience that you know with RHEL, and we continue to provide that same Linux experience via OpenShift, right? As it is a more complicated deployment model for Linux, that is core to us. I think um, the application space and the growth of containers and the use of containers and then the work of microservices, that application space will continue to just expand. expand right? And not only are you a steward of that community, but you guys are an active participant and essentially leading the way in a lot of ways um, of the future development of those platforms. Absolutely. There was an interesting decision in RHEL 8, and it was to not ship Docker, and instead you're shipping uh, Builda, uh, Scopio, and Podman. Can you talk about the decision, uh, what led to that decision, and how that will play out? I think we're continuously watching the upstream communities for the use of what tools will be viable going forward. I think as is standard, and, and Build a Podman and Scopio, we believe provide benefits to customers as the base tools to be put into the operating system. I think another key thing in addition to that decision though is the OCI standard, right, for the use of, of containers, Docker containers, if they are OCI compliant, right? As is with the open source world, we want to provide choice. The OCI, the Open Container um, Interface, right? That OCI standard, that sets up a way for, you know, Docker containers that are OCI compliant to be used with OpenShift and with those tools. So, for us, it's all about monitoring the communities, looking at the tools that we see have both innovative capabilities as well as are being picked up by the upstream and to make sure that they're standards so that none of those interfaces, right, cause a blockage. They continue to drive choice. I've seen in the industry, uh, I've watched 
everybody go from a physical server over to a virtual environments. And obviously, Red Hat has been at the bleeding edge of those virtual infrastructures. Do you see any backlash from the industry in trying to move from a physical environment and convincing companies to retool their infrastructure to support uh, virtual environments? Yeah, so I think... Um I think one of the things that we're very focused on, is, as I mentioned, is really about choice, right? I mean, it's, it's fundamental to what we do. Our goal is to provide Linux any way a customer wants to, wants to consume it. And we have lots of customers who consume it bare metal. We have lots of customers who consume it virtualized, and now clearly we support containerization. So our goal is always not to push customers in order to uh, consume it a certain way. Our, our goal is always to preserve their ability to choose how they want to do it. So we see customers at all different ends of that spectrum. Um, it's not, honestly, we certainly We'll work with customers to make sure that they're running their Linux um, data center as efficiently as possible. Sure. That's part of what we do. Mm -hmm. um, it's part of why we included insights into every subscription so we could further augment that. But um, you know, it's not about uh, it's not about convincing customers. It's about providing them what they need to leverage Linux in the best way possible. One of the interesting things that we've seen with RHEL 8, and it came, uh, I guess, earlier in Fedora, is the invention or the distribution of app streams. Can you talk about what app streams are and how they're beneficial to businesses? Yeah. So, um, you know. Fundamentally, I look at the feature and capabilities in RHEL 8 that fit into two buckets. One bucket is to make sure that we help customers run their environment you know, as effectively, as efficiently as possible, help with productivity um, and, and security. Right? Then the other aspect is, how do we help them consume innovation faster? and keep up with everything that's happening in the open source area. So AppStreams, I think, is a huge step forward for how customers can be able to um, consume their Linux, and they have a, a base OS that is deployed for the kernel that stays steady as the user space and the application space continues to change as you get updates. You want the next version of Java, or you want the past version of Java. AppStreams provides the ability to continuously pull in the versions that you'd like perhaps even run different versions of, of, of the same package mm -hmm. and be able to not change your kernel underneath. So that provides a, a great advantage, right, for the agility of consuming innovation. It really does. Talk a little bit about the universal base image and how that structure works to benefit businesses. So as we look at um, what we deliver in Red Hat Enterprise Linux, it's clearly, it's never been just about the bits, right? Yes. It's always been about the value and the relationship that a customer gets within their subscription with mm -hmm. Red Hat. And part of that certainly is the ecosystem. Part of the team and the engineering team, a lot of the work they do is working with hardware vendors, with ISV companies, with next generation hardware folks, right? Like GPU providers and NVIDIA mm -hmm. and so forth. So we do a lot of engineering work with the, um, folks like that. What we, that delivers is a trusted ecosystem. Everything from hardware all the way up to applications that we have tested. We want to make sure that as a customer has that experience with RHEL, we're able to translate at that into the container world of OpenShift. And universal base image is core to that. Because of the way Linux is consumed in a container environment, every container has Linux user space and libraries in it. So it's important for folks to understand when you get a container from an ISV or someone, it has Linux bits in it. They have made a choice for you for, for your Linux. And so we wanted to go and we wanted to provide a, a package set of 
um, user space that can be used within a container. It can be redistributed, and when it's ready to, you know, it's free to use for developers and sure. for ISVs, and when that innovation of that application, that container is ready to go into production, it can be deployed on OpenShift or it can be deployed on RHEL and be fully supported. So it's really a huge step forward for the ecosystem in order to be able to you know, create and develop and then be ready to deploy in production on OpenShift or RHEL and have that full support environment. Back in the 90s, there was this notion that the operating system was a solved issue, right? And that there was no need to innovate, and so it was it was solved. And obviously, Red Hat, I think, has made that that joke didn't age well, right? Um, as a company that has that has led that development cycle, how do you counter that to people that say that the development process uh, is slowing down, or that the that the innovation of operating systems is slowing down? So I look at Rel Eight as and and. Part of our mission in the market is to make sure that innovation is alive and well in the Linux operating system and that the value of the operating system, RHEL 8 is our opportunity to redefine what that value is. Right? The operating system is not just a single aspect in the stack. We can add more value through our subscription model. I am super excited about RHEL 8 and, and having it be an intelligent OS. And that's a, one of the features of that is the addition of insights into every subscription. We have worked for 15 years to help customers run Linux in their large data centers in a very you know, efficient and secure way. And we've learned a lot. We've gathered a lot of data. Insights as, an, as a service that is now available as part of RHEL subscriptions they can use a rules-based engine and get feedback on and recommendations as far as how their systems can be configured to be more secure, to be more performant, and we can even do workload specifics, things like rules for HANA deployments, rules for SQL Server on RHEL. So there's a huge amount of value yet to be gained because you know, Linux is core. It's just that foundation mm -hmm. of, of everything. So innovation is... Uh, well, it's alive and well. <laughs> and it's exciting. Absolutely, it is. You, you've mentioned Insights a couple of times. For somebody who maybe isn't familiar with it, what's the 30-second elevator pitch? What is Insights, and how does it benefit businesses? So what Insights is is really it's our way in an as-a-service offering to provide to customers recommendations of everything we have learned over the years in working with customers to give them suggestions and alerts on things they could be doing better for their systems and their infrastructure in the data center. And so that's dynamic and specific to each business or each deployment, rather. That's right. And, and one of the beautiful things about it is, you know, we have a set of insights rules today. As we get more data and more data and as new use cases come about, that set of rules will continue to expand, will continue to get better. So for a customer who has a subscription today, there will be new value in that subscription next month and the month after and six months from now. So that's part of the why, reason I love Insight so much is it's, it's really a, a, vi a vision of the relationship that we want with a customer. That relationship continues to grow and get nurtured and get better and as time goes on. Yeah, we'll see it. AI is a very disruptive technology, and we are watching that uh, the innovation happen very quickly. What is Red Hat doing to position itself to help businesses achieve their goals as it relates to AI? So I think a couple of things with AI, right? It, it is clearly a workload that has taken the market by storm. One of the great things about AI is that it is, one, it's enabled by Linux, mm -hmm. right? It is one of those 
core innovation technologies that is being done on Linux. I think another piece about AI that's great is that it it is being deployed because it is so compute hungry. It is being deployed with requirements on hardware and new capabilities like acceleration and GPUs in the hardware. And then it has all the framework capabilities and it's all built around data. So as you look at AI as a, as a um, workload, it is quite complex in all the things it touches. So now as I come back to what we do as, as Red Hat, we only work in ecosystems. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. AI to be successful because it is so aggressive as a workload and drives such compute intensity, in order to succeed, you're going to need an ecosystem to deliver it. No one company can deliver you know, AI holistically. So our partnership with folks like NVIDIA is very important. The fact that it's all built upon Linux is very important. Partnerships with some of the folks you saw on stage this morning, right? And all those ISVs doing amazing tooling work, right? Um, it's gonna be an ecosystem play because it does span the complete stack. Everything from, you know, the silicon gates and the chips that are, are being used all the way out to the applications in the tooling space. So for us, we're gonna participate in that ecosystem and we'll take it on the same way we take on everything. There will, you know, we work with our partners, we test it, we make it tried and true and deploy it for the enterprise. One of the things that's so inspiring to me about every Red Hat employee that I speak with is that open source for a Red Hat employee, it's not just a tagline, it's not a brochure filler, it is a core belief. So what to you personally, what does open source mean? So um, I think everyone has, there are, you know, jobs, there are careers, and there are movements. And I joined Red Hat to be part of the movement, and that movement is open source. Mm -hmm. To me, what open source really represents is it's innovation done faster because a community of the best innovators in the world participate. And that speed and agility and the partnership and the community, it's what I love about it, right? I mean, all of us want to go to work every day and work with the smartest people we can possibly find. Absolutely. And, and this week, we can do it in communities all over the world, right? So it's just exhilarating. Open source is infant enough that most of us that work in, in this career field started out in some sort of proprietary field and we moved into open source because we had that aha moment. What was it for you? What was it when it finally clicked and you went, this is what I want to do and this is where I see passion and where I see the future of technology? Yeah, I think, um, so I first started working in the Linux space about uh, about seven years ago. And I'm a chip person by training, so oh, okay. <laughs> I did silicon technology for many years, and then I did chip design for many years. And I think what really inspired it for me is, you know, coming from the chip world, it, it's... Um, it's a kind of a long and slow process to create a chip, right? And everything has to work. And the real value of Linux is that it's very dynamic. And being able to not just have one company deliver innovation, but have a whole community come together in, with innovation in Linux and have that touch all the way down to the chip, I mean, it's amazing, right? It, Linux spans the entire infrastructure environment. That's what I love about it. It's just fast-paced. It's um, collaborative in a way that it's never been done before, right? I really feel like Linux has taught the world a new way to do development. It has. Stephanie, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Congratulations again on the Thank release you. of RHEL 8. It's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. We're excited to see where Red Hat will go. So are we. <laughs> nice to talk with you. The Ask Noah Show, that's it. We're out of time. We ran right into the top of the hour. I apologize, but it's uh, the way it rolls sometimes. Hey, guys, the Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. 
uh, Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone systems. Uh, JT Pennington, our executive producer, Simon Quigley filling in as show producer, and Sarah filling in as call screener this hour. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty of more content for you 24-7 at AskNoahShow.com. Also, check out YouTube.com slash MindDripMedia. That's video-focused Linux content. Lots of stuff coming this week. We'll see you next Tuesday.